let me have personal privilege to also thank publicly to this congregation the service of Dwight Bailey to us. Dwight, would you please stand? celebration to thank him for his service to us. Dwight is, thank goodness, not going away. He has only changed his seat. He will continue to be a part of this congregation, and I suspect from time to time you'll see him up here preaching and praying and doing what he does in worship. I also would like to thank those who are here in, uh, for Dwight, who are not normally uh, participants of Riverside, if you would please stand, who have come just for Dwight's celebration. <laughs> Dwight, you have more friends than I thought. <laughs> so in all three Gospels, called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' adult ministry always begins in the wilderness, in the River Jordan, with John the Baptist announcing his coming. And if you remember the John the Baptist story, he's dressed in wild prophetic clothing of camel's hair and a big wide belt, and he's eating strange food like locusts and wild honey. And he's meant to stand in the balance or in the measure between the old time, the old world order, and the new time, the new order when Jesus Christ comes into our world bringing the new age. And his job is to herald this coming, to be the announcer of this coming. In this morning's passage, I will read, preceding that, John is out in the wilderness baptizing all the people from Judea and Jerusalem. All the people were going out to him, all of them, being baptized for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. When the priest heard this, they got anxious because they had ritual washings that they were uh, the authority of, and it was their job to determine who was forgiven and who was not. So when they heard that all the people were going out to John the Baptist, as I said, they got a little itchy and found their way into the wilderness with John, where John calls them a brood of vipers, a den of snakes. Who were you to come here? The, root, uh, the axe is laid at the root of the trees and even now is about to cut it down. Then John announces, there is one who is coming greater than I, so much greater than I, that I'm not even worthy to carry his sandal. With that preface, with that announcement, our text begins in the 13th verse of the Gospel of Matthew, in the third chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were split open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. A friend of mine who is the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta likes to tell the story of a baptism that he was officiating. It was for a four-year-old boy, usually a little older than the normal infant baptism. And when they announced for the family and the young boy to come forward, the young boy hit the deck on the floor underneath the pew and started screaming in all his might, I'm not going! I'm not going! The parents and grandparents struggled to try to whisper their way out of this, to coax him up, to come back up and and join the family, but he wasn't budging. It was clear that the worship service was about to be hijacked by a four-year-old. Gary knew exactly what to do. Standing up by the baptismal font, he began to disrobe. He took his his robes off because, I mean, look at us. They call us the preachers, but children secretly really call us the creatures. We're scary looking up here in these big black robes. He took his robes off in his microphone, and in his shirt sleeves, he walked down and got down on his knees and hands and put his head underneath the pew and started talking to the little four-year-old. And then the four-year-old stood up grabbed his hand, and came up to the font. And we're all, Gary, what, what did you say exactly? I said that I'm scared too, just like he is. And with that moment of clergy solidarity with that four-year-old, the four-year-old trusted that authority to stand up and to grab his hand and to step forward. Baptism is a radical act. It should scare us to death like that young child. It renames us. It gives us a new identity as God's child. It provides for us a purpose and a meaning. And it symbolizes the powerful act of God that tames and orders the waters of chaos as God did at the beginning of creation. And the same powerful act of God who, when the flood came, rebuilt a whole new landscape, a whole new world out of it. We're surrounded by the waters of chaos. We know that. In fact, as a perfect ending to this sermon this morning, at 8.30. At 9.30, when it was over, one of the families came up to me and said, we have a problem in the women's bathroom. It's flooding everywhere. There you have it. It seems to be flooding everywhere from time to time. Baptism washes us clean of all of that, we are told. 
It symbolizes the power of God to forgive us of all our regrets and sins and and all of our bumps and bruises, past, present, and future. Now, granted, you don't really get this from the way we Presbyterians do baptism, I suspect. It's a bit innocuous. The young family, usually it's an infant baptism. They get the christening gown or the baptismal gown passed down from generation to generation. It's a, be- it's a beautiful gown. Uh, usually the children are there because it's time to have the child baptized or because maybe some parents or grandparents are urging them to do so. And so they come forward somewhat timidly and hand the child over to the preacher and the preacher reaches in with a little shell, a seashell, and picks up a couple of drops of water and dribbles it over the child's head and proclaims him or her baptized in the name of God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and usually the child takes it pretty peacefully. It's it's a benign act, really, on its surface when you look at it. And even for those who join church by confirming their baptism in eighth grade, who stand before the session and friends and, and lift up their own confirmation of faith, affirmation of faith, really, to excuse the pun, Even the eighth graders are over their head when it comes to the meaning of the waters of baptism. Sometimes I wish we could dunk. I mean, in spite of the fact that there are plenty recovering Baptists here, there's something about dunking that gets the point across. I had a Presbyterian friend in Atlanta who was originally a Baptist who converted, become a Presbyterian, who always wished that we dunked too. And then a young boy came to him and said, "Uh, Preacher, I want to join your church, but I need to be baptized. Okay, we do that. He said, here's the thing though, Preacher. Uh, This young man was about 16. He said, my my parents were Baptist and, and they were dunked, and my grandparents are Baptist and they were dunked, and I'd really like to be dunked too. Well, we don't do dunking in the Presbyterian church. Pastor, please, you can figure this out. Can't, can't I be dunked somehow? So the pastor thought about it and called him back in a couple of days and said, we're going to do it. We're going to dunk you. So the weekend of the baptism, the pastor went to Walmart and got the biggest wading pool he could find, one of those big plastic blue wading pools, and drug it into the church and moved the communion table off to the side and got a hose from outside and drug that in and filled up that waiting pool. I mean, it was, you know, a two foot waiting pool. It took hours to fill this thing up. Nobody knew about it. The sexton, nobody in the congregation. You can imagine when the congregation came in to see that waiting pool in the middle of the floor. The issue for the pastor was, how is he going to get into the waters and dunk this young man on his knees, on their knees, while then jumping back to the sacristy, drying off, changing clothes, and getting back into his robes in a way that was not too distracting. He wore, worked it out, he wore gym shorts and just ripped everything off back in, uh, in solitude and got back in. The issue for him, it turned out, was in the middle of the night, he woke up in a cold sweat. What if it leaks The whole floor of the church will be baptized. (laughs) He pulled it off. 
And then, of course, the session had a called meeting immediately afterward (laughs) and resolved then and there with the pastor's agreement that they will never again baptize in the church just that way. The thing is, we sprinkle because you don't really need to reenact the moment in order to remember it. Jesus took a loaf of bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. And we don't reenact that whole Lord's Supper. It is a sign and a symbol just as much as baptism is. We don't need to bring out the fire hoses against those children marching in the civil rights conflict again to remember all we need to do is tell the story the story is this john the baptist is the announcer the one who is called to be jesus press agent announcing the president coming as if the public announcer and the miami heat basketball game gets up and says and now lebron james One who is mightier than I is coming, and I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And everyone then was watching and waiting for this divine superhero to walk on the stage. But they were looking for the wrong thing. Tom Key, who is an Atlanta actor who was famous for his Cotton Patch Gospel series, was In the middle of one of his performances, he decided to do something impromptu. And so he says, look at the lilies of the field. And he points to his left, and everyone looked at him. And he said, look at the lilies of the field. And by then they're starting to think, oh no, he's forgotten his lines. And finally he said, look at the lilies of the field. And they kept looking at him. Finally, he turns around to the rest of the cast and he says, I can't get them to look. At which point they finally got it and he said, look at the lilies of the field. And they all turned their head and saw a blank wall. But they turned. As hard as it was, they turned. We always seem to be looking in the wrong direction There's this great story, a legendary story, uh, about expecting the wrong thing. Uh, Einstein uh, apparently was walking along in front of the Princeton Inn when a big limousine drove up and a wealthy dowager woman got out. Thinking he was the bellman, she said to him, would you please carry my bags to my room? And Einstein obliged. He picked her bags up and walked into the hotel, asked the room number, went up, laid them at her door, walked back down the stairs. She gave him a nice tip and walked on down the sidewalk, thinking about the whole issue of cosmic generation. She had no idea who he was. And most times, nor do we, because we keep looking in the wrong or the different places. Friends, this is epiphany, which means the presence of God being made manifest to us. And, and the reality is, as I said last week, uh, as artists understand, and I'm trying to, if you 
look at something and try to draw it as you expect it to be, you miss it. You have to draw it as it really is. And that, you see, is what we do not get. The really isness in this passage is Jesus comes, the one who had been announced. And what he does is walk into the very muddy waters of the Jordan River and walk up to John the Baptist and say to him, Baptize me. No, John the Baptist says, No. I'm to be baptized by you. Don't reverse the order. And Jesus says, this needs to be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so into those muddy waters, John took Jesus and dipped him deep and brought him back up. And he was baptized just like all the rest of the people who had gone out to John. This was an issue, you see, because it was the priest's job, the holy religious people's job, to say who was in and who was out, who was washed clean and who was not. There's a whole list of things in Judaism about what it takes to be impure, from from touching a corpse to someone with a deposit of blood to food the wrong way. All of those things make you religiously impure, unrighteous, And the job of the priest is to say to you, okay, now you need to go wash in the Jordan or you need to go wash at the font or you need to wash your hands and your feet before you enter the sanctuary or the house. And so it was the priest's job to determine who was righteous and who was not. When Jesus says in order to fulfill all righteousness, what he's doing, you see, is turning that whole idea of righteousness by law upside down and instead saying, Righteousness is not about law. It's not about piety. It's not about being holier than thou or set apart from. Righteousness, according to Jesus, is about relationship. About love. About being set right again in a broken relationship. Righteousness in the Bible from then on, always has a connotation of restoration and reconciliation of those who have been estranged. When that happens, righteousness happens. Which is exactly what's going on here. Jesus takes on the same condition of humanity in this act of baptism. He becomes like one of us humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, stands in the same muddy, defiled, soiled, churned-up waters of life that we do, subjects himself to the waters of chaos, and in the end gives himself over to the flood of contempt and hatred at his death. And he turned the whole issue of who is righteous and who is not upside down. He reminds us that he has chosen to be in this mess with us in order to do just that. We love to get your Christmas cards every year. We love to get the pictures of families and especially children and grandchildren, the really beautiful, unbelievable pictures of families from friends all over the country. It's one of our highlights at Christmas. 
But this year we were surprised with what I think holds up as the real, most theologically correct card of all. Instead of the perfectly framed and perfectly smiling family and children and grandchildren, it has a picture of the three children, one four, one two, one a toddler. The four-year-old has got giant crocodile tears coming down his cheeks. His mouth is wide open and his fists are up in a rage and you can tell he's having a major meltdown. And the two-year-old has so much mud and cake and mess all over him, you can barely distinguish who he is. And the coup de grace is the toddler is standing and you can only see his back and his diapers are down around his ankles. And the heading was, Joy to the world for the one who chose to come into this mess. (laughs) And don't you see, in coming into this mess, Jesus Christ fulfills all righteousness by enabling us to be with him in all places. He with us and we with him. Out there in the Jordan River, Jesus makes it clear that he has been called as God's son. Even the distance between heaven and earth has been removed. The heavens are split apart. There is no longer any separation. The curtain torn away, we have assurance that God is with us no matter what. If it seems sometimes hard to find this God with us, maybe when we're getting banged around in the rinse and spin cycle of life, maybe we should start looking for something else than what we expect. Maybe someone who looks more like us. On June 16, 1940, Dwight Bailey was brought to this sanctuary as an infant, stood right there with his parents when the font over there used to be right here where the font should be before it was moved in 1958. (laughs) Lifted up to the waters of baptism, he's six months old. This Dwight Bailey, who took on the clerical garb of authority, is the one that you don't even think about in terms of his power and authority, but instead of him on bended knee with the children face to face and eye to eye, or with his arm around you as a friend, no pretense at all of authority, Dwight Bailey as present as he can be. And so for us, when we are being true to Jesus Christ, we too are that present with each other. So look in the mirror if you're looking for Jesus or look into the face of your friend, God's son or daughter, made righteous by the love and grace of God who chose to become like us so that we can become like him. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.